The first game that remotely resembled chess was found in India around the 7th century. It was by the end of the 15th century that its pieces and rules more closely resembled the modern day game played by millions. And by the 19th century, organized chess clubs and competitions began to take shape. Chess is a sophisticated game that is loved by some of the most brilliant minds of their generation, and also people like me. So in the 20th century, when those brilliant minds began to pioneer computer science, one of their earliest goals was to create a chess playing machine. And well, computerized chess grew with computing itself. Today we're going to look back at the entire history of chess, of computerized chess, and talk about console video games in which you can play chess as well. So stick around and get ready for the Queen's Gambit on yet another trip down memory card lane. Good afternoon and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 142nd episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week we'll tell you a story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. It can be about a game, a console, a person, technology, just something relevant to this week. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. Today, we're all going to learn about computerized chess, chess itself, and the video games that have been inspired by chess. That's it. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, the Grandmaster of Stank. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, any good matches lately? Well, Dave, when you're a Grandmaster of the Stank, every match is a good one. Is it? I mean, I, they don't call me the Blunder King for nothing, but no, you no, know. the Blunder King. Yes, sir. That's a good one. Well, I blunder a lot, so there you go. So, Dave, tell me, what have you been playing this week? That's a great question. Uh, Rocket League. I don't recall playing anything but Rocket League. Rocket League. Wow, that's, that's yep. quite the list. I know. How about you? Well rocket league and runescape and if i'm honest i don't think there's much else so it looks like a light week for both of us mm-hmm. wow that's weird i know you know what else is weird what's that we're talking about a board game today i mean i don't think it's that weird we've done it before have we we have okay board game or tabletop game true very true we've talked about plenty of tabletop games we've talked about other board games too we did it early on when we did an episode on democracy and video games because we talked about board games that turned into mail-in games actually that turned into video games yep there you go so uh yeah it can't be that weird if we've talked about them before but uh i will say that this is definitely a different one for us it is. It's a very different one for us because I am not the expert in this one. I am not the chess person. Okay, yeah, yeah. Hold on. Before you use the word expert, I am a person who has interest in chess. To, to even remotely consider me even the tiniest shred of expert is... Man, these kids have been playing since they were four. I could get beat by a six-year-old right now. Like, in less than ten moves. So... Yeah, I like the game, but I ain't no damn expert. So what do you know about the game? Well, I know that there is an 8x8 square, black and white, and you got a bunch of pieces. But what what we're going to talk is the origins. So we're going to start with a little something different, and bear with me because this could get long and boring for those who don't have any interest in chess. But... Being such a long-standing game in the world, uh, it's it's got quite the history. It does, yes. So where did chess come from? Well, Dave, precursors to chess actually came from India. In its earliest form in the 7th century, it was known as Chaturanga, which translates roughly to four divisions like of the military, 
with infantry, cavalry, elephantry, and chariotry. Are those last two actual words? <laughs> um, I've taken... I, uh, wait, I'm just being honest with you. I have a history degree. I have taken a lot of history courses, some of which have been very specific to military history. I have never, ever heard the words elephantry and chariotry ever, ever. Well, I don't know what your teachers were teaching you, Dave, but clearly it wasn't about elephantry and chariotry. No. I mean, I understand the concepts and how they exist, but I've never heard the the words ever, ever. Not even well, exaggerating. I can't tell you what, I don't know what to tell you on that one, Dave, but that, you know, maybe, maybe it's because it's an Indian translation to, to English and it's, it's one of those things. But, you know, that aside... It's actually that those forms that represented the pieces that would evolve into what's known today as your pawn, knight, bishop, and rook. So your chariot tree is a rook? Okay. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, your bishop, your elephant. I mean, it's kind of makes sense when you look at it because the knight is the cavalry. You know, I mean, that's kind of has to be. You think of a knight in shining armor on horseback or running in. Nice. So from India, chess got introduced to Persia, and it became part of the princely or courtly education of Persian nobility. And it was around 600 CE that the name for the game became Shatrang, which subsequently evolved to Shatranj. Probably butchering these like Dave does every week, so I apologize. And if there's any people who know Persian or any language that would know that correct pronunciation, we'd love to hear about it. From there, the game was taken up by the Muslim world after Arab Muslims conquered the Persian Sassanid Empire. The pieces kept their different names at the time. From there, chess spread to Russia, where it became known as Shakmati, which quite literally translates to checkmates. From there, it went to Western Europe by three different routes, which the earliest recorded was around the 9th century. And by the year 1000, it had spread throughout Europe. Introduced in the Iberian Peninsula by the Moors in the 10th century, it was described in a famous 13th century Spanish manuscript, which is the earliest European treatise on chess, which was also the oldest document on European table games. So maybe you'll find some old uh, ye old Dungeons and Dragons in there. Ye old Dungeons and Dragons. Thank you. So from there, chess spread throughout the world, with many variants emerging. Buddhist pilgrims, Silk Road traders, and others carried it to the Far East, where it was transformed and assimilated into a game often played on the lines of the board, rather than within the squares. So for those of you who don't know, the way you play chess, you have pieces that are each set up in either a black or a white square uh, on an 8x8 board, um, and the pieces move on the center of that. So to think of it being within the line as opposed to in the square, it's pretty crazy. Right, Dave? It's really crazy to think about that, like how it's evolved basically from Chitraz, Chitrange, Chitrang, Chitrang. Yeah, well, you know, after that, it only continued to change the pieces, which were non-representational in Islamic countries started taking shape in Christian cultures. That's when carved images of men and animals appeared. The shape of the Rook was originally a rectangular block with a V shape cut in the top. And the two top parts that separated by the split tended to get long and hang over. And in some old pictures looked like horses heads. (laughs) And this is a, Yeah, no, this one's even funnier. So if you know the bishop, the split top of the piece of it, that's actually interpreted either to be a bishop's smiter or a fool's cap. So one might conclude, oh, you know what I mean, Dave. (laughs) But I will leave that. By the mid-12th century, the pieces of the chess set were depicted as kings, queens, bishops, knights, and men-at-arms. Chessmen made of ivory began to appear throughout Northwest Europe, and ornate pieces of traditional knight warriors were used as early as the 13th century. The initially nondescript pawn had now found association with the footman, 
which symbolized both infantry and loyal domestic service. Now, in the 15th century, there was writings on the theory of how to play chess. In the 18th century, the center of European chess moved from southern European countries to France. And as the 19th century progressed, chess organizations developed quickly. Many clubs, books, and journals appeared. There were even correspondence matches between cities. Like in 1824, the London Chess Club played against the Edinburgh Chess Club. It was not uncommon for there to be chess problems in the newspapers, much as you'd find today a crossword puzzle. You think about that, Dave? When's the last time you saw a chess puzzle in the newspaper? I don't even know the last time I picked up a newspaper to be totally honest with you. Yeah, you know, I, you, you're right. You, you got a point there. But when you did see a newspaper, could you ever say there was chess in there? I remember, like, the, the, the cartoons and, you know, the, the, the crossword puzzle and the, the Help Wanted ads, but chess? No, nah, I can't say I ever saw it. Yeah, I can't say I ever saw it either, honestly. I think the only real thing I ever saw in chess was, or in uh, newspapers, was crossword puzzles and Sudoku. 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 There you go. Color me corrected. That you are. Uh, yeah, we determined that already. <laughs> <laughs> it was in 1843 that Van der Lasse published his and Bigger's Handbuch des Schachspiels. Oh, oh which... you pronounced that one. Well, it, that's German, Dave. I mean, come I, on. I it's it, And it's it's a classic. It's the Handbook of Chess, which was the first comprehensive manual of chess theory. So 1843. You think about that. This game's been around since the uh, 7th century. 7th century. And it's not until 1843 that there's finally a book written about theory. Well, and it's crazy, too, to think about because, like, it's 7th century form is not its modern form. It, you know, they, they do exist as two different, like, I guess that without going back into terms, like it's the concept of old chess and modern chess. Like there are differences, you know? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that that's exactly why you can't really consider that the first comprehensive manual, because I mean, there were different games. Of course, anything that was made then wouldn't apply to what's available today. Yeah, very true. It's just, it is crazy though that it goes back that far. It is one of the oldest board games that we know of, not the oldest by any stretch of the imagination. Um, there are BC games, but they all, almost all games prior to this were like, I mean, we had checkers prior to this, admittedly, but the most of the games we had prior to this were dice games or like ball games, like with a, like with a handball or some kind, you know? So pretty interesting. I- I mean, what, what do you mean a handball? Like a like a like a ball. Like a uh, ball? Like, yeah, like a ball, like like a round thing that you would throw from a person to another. Not necessarily used as a throwing device, but like they would use balls to dice balls and stuff to denote things. They had so I obviously did do my research, but I vaguely remember that the Greeks had various games that were played with balls. That's like really putting funny. it through a hoop in the in the I wall. I honestly don't know. Um, I think I might have seen that in a movie once. To be fair, it was like basketball, but with the, a stone hoop in the side of the the Colosseum. I just know that they had th- that those ones predate chess, especially the dice ones. The oldest game in the world is Senate, which was played by the ancient Egyptians, which predates this by a long shot. So, I don't know, Dave. You might have them beat still. yeah so on that dave it was in 1851 that the first modern chess tournament was held and it was won by german adolf anderson who was relatively unknown at the time he was hailed as the leading chess master and his brilliant energetic attacking style became typical for the time since the end of the 19th century the number of annually held chess tournaments and matches quickly grew. And it was in 1914 that the title of Grandmaster was first formally conferred, was first 
formally conferred by none other than Tsar Nicholas of Russia. The second Tsar Nicholas. Had to specify, huh? You know, yeah, of course, because, you know, anyone who knows Tsar Nicholas I would be quite upset with that one. Um, but, you know, that's only a disputed claim. So who knows if that's true? But, you know, if that's the case, 1914, the first Grandmaster, which for those that don't know, Grandmaster is the highest title that can be obtained in chess, uh, aside from world champion. But a world champion normally is going to be a Grandmaster unless some crazy stuff happens. Has crazy stuff ever happened? Uh, not, 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 I mean, we can, there is a lot of, uh, chess well, championship I, history. Uh, yeah, I know. Um, so it, not really, there, there have definitely been some crazy things, but I would never say a grandmaster having one. Okay. So in 1924, the World Chess Federation or FIDE was founded. And in 1927, the Women's World Chess Championship was established with the first to holding it, the Zhek English master, Vera Menchik. So the old system was very informal, um, and the world champion decided which challenger they'd play for the title, and the challenger was forced to seek sponsors. So, you know, someone was champion, and they would just say, hey, I want to I want, I want challenge you for my championship. Not the other way around, you know? You'd think it would be someone would challenge the world champion, and that would be it. Like, technically, that is actually it. Like, there's multiple people that are saying, I want it, and he chooses which one. But now that I'm saying it out loud, it makes more sense in my head. Okay. I'm glad for that. All right. <laughs> so, after that, FIDE set up a new system of qualifying tournaments and matches. There were interzonal tournaments, interzonal tournaments. And they were when people were joined by players from zonal tournaments. Then the leading finishers in interzonals would go on to candidate stage, which was a tournament and then later a series of knockout matches. And the winner of the candidates would play the then reigning champion for the title. But a champion who was defeated in a match had a right to replay that person a year later. So they could, the old champion could just say, Hey, I want a rematch for my championship and not have to go through any of that other stuff. Can you think of that? You go through all these inner zonals, these zonals, you, the candidates, and then you, you, that's it. That's it. That's how it works. Well, it wasn't always, it didn't stay like that, Dave. It, it definitely did not. No, it's <clears throat> better now. Yeah. In 1961, FIDE abolished the automatic right of a deposed champion to a rematch. And the next champion, Armenian Petrosian, who was a genius of defense and strong positional player, was able to hold the title for two cycles. Which, each cycle was three years. So, that was kind of an important thing to... <laughs> yeah. So... From there, there's a lot of uh, different changing of champions, but one of the best known, Gary Kasparov, who is well known among chess as a very phenomenal player. He held the champion, the tournament for quite a long time. Uh, in 93, he cut ties with FIDE and they established their own competing association known as the Professional Chess Association. Because they were tired of the three year cycle. They, yeah, they got tired of the way that things were with FIDE and they, they wanted to do their own thing. Um, and for a while they did. From 93 to 2006, there were two world champions and world championships. So you could consider yourself the chess champion, but hey, that guy over there, so is he. Uh, every sport has that at some point, you know what I mean? Like where they split and there's two, two groups doing, doing, well, you, different... you mean like the NFL and the XFL? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah no, I mean, it is funny when you think of that, but there, there's always someone who gets tired of the way that things are ran and just decides, Hey, let's do our own thing. We have the money we can afford to let's, let's see how many other people we can get involved that are tired of losing the old way. And 
scoot on over to this easy way. That's it. In 2006, FIDE reunites, reunites the titles. And in that year, Kramnik beat the FIDE world champion, Veselin Topolov, and became the undisputed world chess champion. Because, you know, there's not another title. So, yay, 2006. So, so we went from it being just like XFL and NFL to being just like the WWF and WWE and uh, Raw all that stuff. So now it's more like wrestling with the undisputed world champion. Yeah. I mean, you had to go into a cage match. You had to throw down and you had to win. I don't know what that has to do with chess, but it's like chess boxing actually, you know, which is a whole different thing, a whole nother topic that we can get to later on after we talk about video games. Okay. So in 2007, Vishwanathan Anand from India became the next champion by winning a championship tournament. And in 2008, he retained his title. And he kept it until 2013. After that, he was defeated by Magnus Carlsen. And for anyone who knows, who follows chess and knows Magnus Carlsen, uh, he's a world champion and has defended his title four times. Uh, however, in 2023, a.k.a. this year, he decided not to defend his title because he's a little <laughs> hey dave th- this is a guy who could be shwasted off his butt and still beat you in five so <laughs> he could and be he, he'd probably beat you up too i don't know he, he looks like a pretty tough dude you know why he didn't def- decide to defend this year though no dave why don't you enlighten us no why don't you enlighten us i have no idea dave he's the butt plug guy <laughs> No, stop. That was not. <laughs> it was. Tell me you don't remember that when he was accused of of that. No, no, I think you got him confused with someone else, Dave. I probably do. I'm pretty confident you have him confused with someone else that, that was caught cheating doing that because I, I don't think Carlson would need to do something like that. It, it wasn't to cheat if it was. It was... Uh, yeah, I don't know. It would have been for a completely different reason. Uh, wasn't it, though? I, You know what? He might have gotten beaten by the guy. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe he was the one who got beat by the butt plug, and he was embarrassed by being beaten by a butt plug. <laughs> I don't remember. Wasn't he part of that whole debacle, though? Wasn't he one of the two people in that debacle? I, that's I'm I'm pretty sure if that if it's what I'm thinking of that he lost to the guy who was accused of cheating. Cause I believe it was Hans Neyman Nyman, and I'm pretty sure he beat Magnus Carlson. So if I remember correctly, that's that's what it was. So he lost. Yeah, Carlson lost to a butt plug. Carlson lost to chess grandmaster Hans Neyman. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Yeah. Right. So he, he lost to the butt plug. He was, he was the, uh, he defeated Carlson and then <laughs> some pundits proclaimed that Nielsen was tapping into a remote computer via a vibrating sex toy. <laughs> there you go. So for anyone who thinks we're kidding, go ahead and look this up. Uh, the, the former world champion Magnus Carlson was defeated by a guy who, was accused of using a butt plug. Yes, go to go to vice.com. There's an article called Cyber, the chess scandal involving butt plugs, AI and accusations of cheating. What a title. <laughs> what a title. Oh my god. Okay, so it wasn't Carlson, but I was right in that his name was associated with it. I just had them flip-flopped. So, no, you're absolutely right. Um, but you know, that's in a nutshell, a very chaotic, brief description of chess. Uh, yep. It's a very old-ass game. It is. And uh, there have been a lot of changes, although Soviet Russia had a lot of lot of time in the early 1900s of uh, winning the championship. Got beat by American Bobby Fischer. Let's go. That's right. Got beat by Bobby Fischer. You know, I mean, but it's it's... There's definitely a lot more to it. And for anyone who is interested in chess, I would suggest looking it up and reading the number of countless books because chess is complicated. Chess is complicated. 
But Rob. Yeah, Dave. We're a video game and technology podcast. Oh, shit. You're right. So. Uh, well, I guess to, to kind of wrap it all into why the hell this matters to us. Um, it was in the 1950s that the first chess machine was created. It could play chess or, you know, reduce chess like games. But 1950s. It was. But I'm going to tell you. Now we're in my field of expertise. Oh, oh. Computerized chess, automated chess more so, goes back as far as the 18th century. What? Shut up. No, it doesn't. Yeah, get this. So in the 18th century, you're going to like a a bit of this. So in the 18th century, there was a Hungarian inventor named Wolfgang van Kempelen. He debuted an autonomous chess robot (laughs) named the Mechanical Turk. Uh, the Mechanical Turk could play and beat some opponents. It remained operational from about 1770 until 1854. Uh, in 1854, it burned up in a fire. Damn. I, I also love the name. Um, the and autonomous, for any fan the, of Scrubs, the Turk. That's all I can think of is just a, a mechanic, like him doing the robot now, playing chess. It, that's going to be a vision forever now. So this is the earliest historical record of anyone ever having a chess machine per se, but unfortunately it wasn't actually autonomous after it burnt up a few years later, it was revealed that it was actually controlled by a human. I was going to say like, how could it know what move to play? There is no logic created unless like it had some preset moves based on where someone, I guess I would have to see it. Yeah, so, but that's the next thing. Okay, so in 1912, Leonard Torres y Cuevado built an automaton named El Ajedrecistra. I can't say that. Aje? Aje? I don't know. I couldn't tell you. It's some machine. It was capable of playing an endgame with white pieces. Uh, Basically, the endgame was this. White has a king and a rook, and black only has a king. And that's that's the, what the machine was. And that machine was able to black to checkmate the black king every single time. And it could detect uh, it could detect illegal moves, too. Uh, by a lot of definitions, this some people actually consider this machine the first computer game in history because it was computer circuits and like uh, machine stuff together that would detect the moves and and help it. And in case you're curious, it is actually the machine is still working over 100 years later, and it's on display in a museum in Madrid. If you want to go see it, you can go see it. So the actual earliest autonomous chess machine came in 1912. Now, that's not a full game, right? It it it's made to to allow you to play a very specific chess situation, right? Yeah, I, I would definitely say most games don't involve two kings and a rook. Well, they do, but (laughs) (laughs) that's not the only thing the game is. Let's go. (laughs) But you're right. Computers were invented. We started to get computers in the 1950s, and it was really only a matter of time before someone programmed computers to play chess. And the first time we saw any semblance of this was actually 1950, whereas Claude Shannon, he wrote one of the first articles ever, He not one of probably the first article ever published, on the topic of programming a computer for chess and then using a computer to solve the game. Uh, Really famously, the next year in 1951, Alan Turing, one of the pioneers of computer science, uh, would create the first computer chess-playing algorithm uh, by hand, uh, but computers at the time couldn't run it. He would literally run it by hand and play it by hand to know that it worked, but there wasn't a single computer that could run it at the time. So, uh, how, how, like, well, how is he able to, it's not, it's an algorithm, right? So you pick a move and the, and then you run it through the algorithm. I mean, it's just math. Algorithms are always just math. He was a genius in that stuff. He, I mean, Alan Turing is like also the king of crypto, crypt, crypto, like crypto, uh, when they do secrets with that stuff, I can't Cryptography. Remember. Thank you. Um, so the man was literally a genius. And so he literally creates this algorithm and it's, it's a bunch of math and he, he does it by hand. He runs imitation it. game. Is that the movie? 
It is, yes. Yeah, okay, I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah, yes, okay. He, All right, that makes yeah, sense. He <laughs> runs it by by hand and every time could make it work, but the computers couldn't. They weren't they weren't strong enough. But they were improving fast. And later that year, in late 1951, one of his friends, Dietrich Prinz, would create the first computer chess playing computer algorithm for the Ferranti Mark I, which we've talked about before. It was the first commercially available computer. And it could solve part of a game of chess, but it wasn't nearly powerful or sophisticated enough to play a full game. It wasn't actually until 1957. In 1957, there was an IBM engineer named Alex Bernstein. He created the world's first fully automated chess engine. It could play, it could actually play an entire game of chess, but each move took about eight minutes to compute. Damn. Yeah. So as computers continue to improve, so too did all these chess engines that were written for it. And it's really fascinating to see how quickly everything progressed because as computers, we know computers, you know, progress really quickly. What they could do progress too. So as they were able to calculate faster, you could, you could calculate more moves in chess faster and then chess became faster. Right. So 1957, uh, the year Alex Bernstein created that first uh, fully automated chess engine. Uh, a team at Carnegie Mellon University predicted... Ooh, that, fake CMU! <laughs> they predicted that a computer would defeat the world human champion by 1967. That was their prediction back back when back then. Well, Dave, it, was it right? It, well, as we went into the 1970s, it really... No one was really sure. In 1968, international chess master david levy he made a, a famous bet his bet was that no chess computer would be able to beat him within 10 years in 1976 senior senior master i'm going through these terms again and professor of psychology elliot hurst at indiana university he wrote that the only way a co- current computer program could ever win a single game against a master player would be for the master perhaps in a drunken stupor while playing 50 games simultaneously to commit some once in a year blunder. What, is, so, what the hell is a senior master, Dave? I know international master, which is a step below grandmaster, but I'm actually not familiar with the, uh, okay. So there are classes. I actually wrote this later on in this, which I'm gonna call it. Where is my notes on classes, 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 classes. VI. Thank you. Okay, so the way it's calculated back the, the at this time with the ratings, the top rating, so when you play chess, you're given a score. It's called an ELO. What's that stand for? I don't remember. Uh, it, I, I just know it as ELO. Uh, I, okay. It actually so you stands get a, for anything. So you get an ELO. I know it has, a, I know it has, it's an acronym for something. I don't know what, but it basically you get a numerical score. Uh, that tells where you are and i think like what like 2400 and up is is the highest like senior master well, yes uh, uh senior master isn't a thing for what i'm aware of. i oh, know that's grandmaster that's, that's very true okay all right grandmaster but yes the grandmaster i mean 24 there is not a cap really so um it's it's hard to say at what point but i would say most gms are generally above 2400 so this was um all right so the elo rating system elo rating system has grandmasters at 25 to 2700 uh elo um does elo have a whatchamacallit it's named after its creator. Okay, it's not an acronym. Arpad nice. Elo actually is the inventor of it. It's named after him. There you go. Okay, yeah, that's so, why it's called Elo. So, yes. So, so the Elo rating system is the current one: twenty five hundred, twenty seven hundred grandmasters, twenty four to twenty five are international masters, twenty three to twenty four hundred are FIDE masters, twenty two to twenty three are FIDE candidate masters. 2,000 to 2,200 are candidate masters, and then every 200 is a class below that. So class A, class B, class C, class D. Now, there's another rating system used by the USCF, which is which is called the USCF rating categories. And this is where this comes from. So a senior master had a rating range of 2,400 and up. 
a national master was 22 to 24 an expert was uh 2000 to 2200 and then every 200 below that was class a through class j does that make more sense so this was just another case of i don't like your system i'm making my own essentially yes um i don't think i don't yeah it was just a different way it was just a different way the USCF system is a modification of the ELO system in which the K factor varies and it gives bonus points for superior performance in a tournament. UCF ratings are generally 50 to 100 points higher than their FIDE equivalents. So yes, it's exactly what it is, just so you know. Okay. And, okay, so back to the history, which we were talking about the senior master, uh, Elliot Hurst, saying that the only way a computer would ever win against a master would be for them to drink their butt off while playing 50 games simultaneously and commit this once-in-a-year blunder. That's a pretty defiant statement against computer chess, you know? Uh, I mean, though, for someone who is considered a grandmaster, I, you know... Magnus Carlsen has blundered many games while wasted and recovered, so with the technology at the time, maybe he wasn't too far off. Then something happened in the late seventies. Chess programs suddenly began defeating skilled human chess players. And maybe he was wrong. The computers were getting better. The chess were able to compute better. It just, it happened in 1976. The same year that Elliot Hurst made that once in a year blunder statement. Northwestern University had a program called Chess 4.5. It became the first chess program to win a human, human tournament, though it only won it at the Class B level, which we just learned about. So we're basically yep. five five tiers below, I guess, Grandmaster or Senior Master, depending so, on so how far, you uh, So far, Elliot's right. Yep. Levy, who made that famous bet that no chess computer would be able to beat him within 10 years, ended up winning his bet 10 years later when he beat uh, the the sequel to that program, our predecessor, uh, not predecessor. What's it when it comes successor. after? Successor. Chess 4.7. He beat Chess 4.7. But the moment is iconic because they played six games and chess 4.7 beat him in one of those six games and it's mm. the first time ever that a computer beat a master level level player in a tournament well was he also in a drunken stupor and playing 50 games no not that time well elliot sorry sorry to say it but you were wrong well i guess in 76 he wasn't but nope he nope they won their bet in 1980 uh there was a chess computer named bell it began often beating masters and by 1982 there were about two chess programs rated at the mass that could beat master master level and about three or four that were rated just beneath it so you know things were moving really fast in 1982 a microcomputer chess program could evaluate up to 1500 moves per second and to put this into perspective that's as strong and as fast as the mainframe chess computer programs that existed only five years earlier. So no. we went from like warehouse size computers in 1977, five years later, microcomputer, personal microcomputer chess programs could operate as fast. So things were moving really fast, right? I would say so. In 1982, at the North American Computer Chess Championships, uh, chairman of the Computer Chess Committee, Monroe Newborn, predicted that a chess program could become world champion within five years. So his prediction was 1987. The tournament director and international master at the time, Michael Valvo, predicted 10 years, so he thought 92, and computer science pioneer Ken Thompson predicted 20 years, so he was thinking 2002. Most people, though, at the time thought that the that it would be about right about the year 2000 that a chess program could become world champion. So in 1989, Levy, the man who said, hey, you're never going to beat me unless I'm playing five games and blah, 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 blah. Or no, he's the one who thought it couldn't be beat in 10 years. But Levy right. was beat 
1989 in an exhibition match by Deep Thought, one of the early chess engines. Deep Thought was really well below world championship level. Um, and it went up not against... for long though dave no not at all no because there's a pretty well-known thing with deep blue against the former champion gary well, kasparov yeah but we're not deep blue blue yet we're deep thought at this time oh shit you're right <laughs> um okay so deep thought uh levy was defeated by deep thought in 1989 in an exhibition match and then they put up Deep Thought against world champion Gary Kasparov in 1989, and Kasparov beat it defiantly with two strong wins. So we're still not there yet. 1996, they put Deep Thought, gets changed, modified, bought up by IBM. I don't think when it was Deep Thought it was IBM. I think it was still with its researchers. But IBM eventually takes the project, and yes, that becomes Deep Blue. Which and then that in, is yes, a very well-known thing with it chess. Is, it is. So in 1996, uh, Deep Blue, game one, Kasparov loses his first game to a computer using tournament time controls. But um, Kasparov regrouped in this one, and he won three and drew two of the remaining games for a match. It was a convincing victory with what? What does that mean? Three wins, two draws, and one loss. So yeah, that's that's pretty much a win in my book. I would definitely say so, yeah. But, you know, Dave, the important thing there is that's the first time that a computer beat a champion. The world champion, no less. Wow. I mean, it was it was a very, it was a big, it was a big deal. Kas, look, Kasparov, these were highly publicized matches. Like, like, this was on the news every day when this was happening type deal. So this was a big deal. Um, I remember when this was happening because, like, these are, Deep Blue was a supercomputer. You know, it, it, that's it, it was a supercomputer. The notion of supercomputers was a very foreign concept to people in the mid 90s. And this is how a lot of people were introduced to the concept was like, hey, here's Deep Blue and it's going to defeat a chess champion. And that was the coolest thing ever to 13 year old me, you know. So speaking of which, the next year in May of 97, they did some tweaks and they updated Deep Blue and it beat Kasparov. That's the famous one that you're talking about. Three and a half to two and a half in a return match the next year. So Okay, so it was in 97. Correct. It was in 97. There's a there's a pretty well, uh, pretty interesting documentary whose name I can't think of right now that's all about that. But yes, 97 is when Deep Blue officially beat Kasparov. So, I mean, 30 years after the, the bets were being made that it could defeat a world champion, but... Well, I mean, yeah, initially, but everyone in 82 said the year 2000, and they weren't very far off, so... No, they definitely were not. That That is true, and it's I'm sure it's only gotten crazier since then, Dave. Actually, it kind of has, but we're not going to cover too much of that, um, because I wanted a chance to kind of talk about the video games, because as personal computers became more popular people were writing chess software for it you know oh there was a really popular one called sargon it was written in assembly language in 1978 by dan and kathleen Spracklin. uh it was introduced at the 1978 west coast computer fair where it won the first computer chess tournament that was held strictly for microcomputers with a score of five to nothing um, and, and basically like it was magnetic media and magnetic, magnetic media wasn't widely available. So they put an advert in bite magazine and they basically sold like for $15 sold the, like the source code of it that people could program, uh, hmm. and port to other machines. Um, the Spracklins are pretty well known in the chess community. They, while they were working on Sargon for personal computers, they were also working with Fidelity Electronics, uh, who made dedicated chess computers. They actually wrote the engine in the dedicated chess computers that won the first four World Microcomputer Chess Championships. Wow. Um, there was an engine called Chess Genius, a computer program. Uh, chess Genius was written by Richard Lang. Richard Lang wrote uh, between 1984 and 1993 he wrote chess programs that won 10 different chess he that won the world computer chess championships 10 different times in those nine years 
Um, I don't know how that works, but it's the stat. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The Chess Genius program was entered into a professional chess association rapid chess tournament in 1994. It actually defeated and eliminated Gary Kasparov in 94, but under ra- rapid chess rules, which which was a little different. And then it lost to Arnand in the next round. But that one's important because that was the first time that was the first time that a computer had ever defeated a world champion in an official game. The reason why it's not as famous as the other one was because it was under rapid time controls and a computer has the benefit under rapid time controls, but not the sophistication. The importance of beating it with deep blue years later was the sophistication of doing it under tournament rules and time. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I would say so. Cause I'd never actually heard of chess genius. Yeah, so so there. So Chess Genius beat Kasparov in 94. A little fun fact for you. Socrates 2 is another one. It was a chess program. In 1993, it won the 23rd North American Computer Chess Championship. It ran on an IBM PC. It was the first and only time that a stock microcomputer won this event. So a little fun fact there. The authors, Don Daly and Larry Kaufman, renewed their collaboration 20 years later to create the Komodo chess engine, which you had said that chess got pretty crazy. There are some pretty notable matches in 2020 and 2019. They're handicapped chess matches against uh, world champions. And the Komodo chess engine was the chess engine at the center of both of those. So you're right. There are still people doing these chess engines and making computer and computerized chess relevant even even to now just a side note well i mean i i at least know for experience that stockfish is a, the one of the most well-known and widely used ones now so and if i'm uh, not mistaken what makes stockfish so significant isn't stockfish a neuro ai and that what makes it unique that's a little farther in depth than i'm aware gotcha so what changed for chess engines as we went into like the modern era, like the 2000s and beyond is they incorporated AI, like older algorithms are just algorithms. Like if X, then do Y, if, you know, if this move, here's the other thousand moves they can do. Like that's literally how they did it. You know, they, they had, they listed all the moves, but the modern chess engines actually are neural learning AIs where they, they learn, they, they learn and they modify and they think closer to humans because they're, they're, they're like, um mapping neural pathways it's really fascinating the way it works you should you should read about it so i will definitely do so (laughs) all right so people were writing chess programs for computers but it it should be no surprise that they were also writing chess programs for video game consoles and we're a video game history podcast so let's take a little bit of time and talk about that yeah finally I know. So in 1979, (laughs) Bob Whitehead and Larry Wagger wrote video chess for the Atari 2600. We've run into Bob Whitehead before. He's one of the co-founders of Activision, one of the guys that wrote for Atari. And we know that Atari was famously awful to their programmers. So a group of Atari programmers left, uh, including Bob Whitehead, and they founded their own third-party publishing company, Activision. People originally thought that the 2600 wasn't capable of running a chess game but they found a way to do it. it wasn't the fact that it couldn't process the moves. That wasn't the problem. The fact with the Atari 2600, the problem was you could only display so many pixels on the screen at one time and no one could figure out how to make that work with the entire chessboard. And they basically made it look like a, it, it, it's like lines through it. Like it's, it skips lines so you can see the outline of everything, but it's not like solid pieces, if that makes sense. Ah, uh, um, gotcha. Is how they did it. At its highest difficulty, actually, it could calculate a move in 10 seconds. Calculation wasn't the problem. In fact, this is really fascinating. So if you look at the manual that came with the game, it had eight difficulties that varied in its move time. Level one was 15 second average move time. Two was 30. Level five was three minutes and 15 seconds. Level six was 12 minutes. And level seven was 10 hours for each (laughs) one. What the hell? I don't know what it is about level eight. Level eight was advertised at 10 seconds. That doesn't make sense to me. I didn't get a chance to dig into it, but it's just crazy. Like level seven's 10 hours per move, you know, that I make a move, go walk away for a while and come yeah, back. Pretty like much. Could the, the, people even leave Atari's on that long? 
Yeah, I guess. And Rob, that brings us to the reason why we're here today, why I picked chess for today's topic. On May 17th, 2011, 12 years ago, there was a game released, not that relevant of a game, but hey, it gave us an excuse to talk about chess, and that's called Battle versus Chess. It was a chess game. It was released for all the platforms at the time, PS3, 360, Wii, Windows, Linux, Mac, everything. It wasn't originally released in the United States. There was a lawsuit. Basically, Interplay sued the company that made this because they have a title called Battle Chess, which is very close to Battle versus Chess, right? I'd say a little bit. And they won, basically. So in North America, the game is called Check versus Mate, which is why you may have never heard of it before. Um, but, everywhere else, but everywhere else but the United States, it's Battle versus Chess. Now, Battle Chess is a video game version of chess it has 2.5d graphics and it has fighting animations so it follows the traditional rule of chess and now this is like 1988 it first comes out it's been ported to everything there's an nes version there's an apple II version there's a windows version there's a 3do version amiga versions hell they got an apple II version 2gs the color one rob um everything so like Um, If a checkmate's delivered, the checkmating piece fights and defeats the king, right? So the rook turns into a rock monster and kills a pawn by smashing its head. The rook kills the queen by eating her. Um, There is an animation, the knight versus knight animation has the black, references the black knight fight from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. The king versus bishop fight basically makes fun of the short battle between Indiana Jones and a swordsman in Raiders of Lock Ark. So there's a whole lot of stuff going on here. This was made by Interplay. Brian Fargo, Interplay founder, who we've talked about before with our uh, Fallout and Wasteland episodes, if I'm not mistaken, is very fond of the game. He later said in a 2006 interview, though, that he didn't think that there was an audience for it in the modern time. He's right. No one's going to play it anymore. Fun little fact, though. Uh, Battle Chess was featured in a 1992 film called Night Moves, which was about a chess grandmaster who was accused of several murders. Uh, interesting. Uh, so let me ask you this. Have you played any chess video games, like like specific chess video games, or do you just do the online stuff? I just do the online stuff. Uh, the closest I've gotten, um, like, I've downloaded that. I don't know what the game is called since it's not Battle Chess. I thought it was, but... Basically, that when you try to take a piece, you you fight like cert the pawn. I forget like each each different character has different weapons and things. Is it the one that's like orcs and? No, it's it's literally the chess pieces. It's it's the normal pawn, rook, bishop, but they fight and it's like first person fighting on a chessboard. That's cool. I remember playing at an early young age games in the Chess Master series. Chess Master is owned by Ubisoft nowadays. It's actually the best-selling chess franchise in history. It sold, I mean, the last statistics, 2002, when it sold more than 5 million units. It is, the last version was Chess Master 9000. Um, Chess Master 9000, running on an Athlon 1200 PC, which is nothing nowadays, had an estimated ELO rating of 2718. So running on a nothing wow. computer, it has an estimated rating of Grandmaster status, basically. God damn. I know, just to kind of give you an idea how powerful things are nowadays. And then there's a bunch of other random little ones. You know, they actually made a, a, a chess-playing video game in the Star Wars universe called Star Wars Chess. What? Shut it's, up. It's, yeah, it's like Battle Chess, but with Star Wars characters. Uh, Gary Kasparov did make various video games. One's called Virtual Kasparov. Um, it, it, it has games. You can play it single player. You can multiplayer. It also will allow you to play out various games specifically that Kasparov has played during his career. So you can be put huh. in situations that he was in and work your way out of them like a, like a chess grandmaster. Wow, that's pretty um, neat. They also made one for the Nintendo 64 called Virtual Chess 64, released in 98. It also has short animated cutscenes that that battle like the pieces battle when a piece is captured just like battle chess that seems to be a recurring theme for a lot of games so they made a lot of games they made a lot of games for systems when it comes to chess they've been doing it for a long time and 
and it's really fascinating because the history of chess and computerized chess just kind of mirrors the history of computers and technology and so on and so forth. You know what I mean? I absolutely agree. It's crazy when you think about it. So you play, you play online, right? Yes, I play just, online. Just chess.com, right? That is correct. Which is what I play on. I kind of, sort of. Rob and I play chess, uh, like, really slow because I always forget that we're playing. It's like one move per seven days, and I'm always reminded on the last day to do my move, <laughs> which I just did, <laughs> like, a little while ago with, like, 12 hours to go. Rob beats me every time. We've only played once. We're on our game, too. And granted, I'm going to win, but still. <laughs> you got me on the ropes and you know it. <laughs> uh... I Look, I used to play chess. It was something that I played when I was in middle school and high school, like early high school. I got chess boards, played with some people, and then I just kind of lost interest in it. Like video games took over, honestly. I had a really nice chess board. I don't know where it is. It was it was completely wood, and I, I took it after one of our neighbors passed away. Um, the professor. <laughs> ah, yep. Good old professor. I've heard many, many things. It was a Czechoslovakian, like, handcrafted board. It was beautiful. I have no clue where it is. It's really a bummer. It's probably in the basement somewhere in your house. Oof. So, yeah, I know um but anyway so i hadn't played for years and then recently you're like let's play chess and i was like oh okay i'll pick it up but i really don't know what i'm doing but that's how you get better right you practice that you do and you know 15 20 years of study i am kidding but i'm not kidding though the grandmasters have studied their entire lives of chess so i know i know uh, we'll only ever just be uh chess enjoyers I, I agree. I don't feel bad at all, though, because I'm pretty sure I could outplay them or outdo them on video game history, trivia, and facts. So, uh, I would I would definitely agree, Dave. You you could beat us both in that front. Yeah, yeah. I um I we all have our specialties. Mine happens to be video game history. So that it does. Which we've done a lot of history. It's crazy to think about. We're on our 142nd episode. We have 141 more episodes of stuff for you to go over. You know, stuff with people that we talked about in this episode, like Brian Fargo from Interplay. Like, who else did we talk about? Uh, The Activision guy. Can't remember his name right now. Gonna feel really bad. Bob Whitehead is his name right now. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Right now. I thought that was always his name. We've talked right, right on. We talked about board games. You know, there, there was a, there is an episode where we talked about early board games, earlier board games. So there's lots of history to go on to. If you'd like to check out any of these episodes, you can do so by going to our website at www.memorycardlane.com, where you can also find things like what Rob, what else, what else do I put on the website? I forget all the time. That you do, Dave. Well. You can go to the website and find calendars of previous and future episodes. Leave little notes there for Dave and I to maybe talk about your pro- or your experiences with a topic that we're going to be coming up with in coming weeks. You can find a picture of Dave and I and some information. Uh, you know, Rob still probably hasn't updated that in three years, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, you can also find links to our social medias, Dave, which... I can be found on various platforms as Rob underscore O underscore Raptor and Dave. I can be found on various media platforms as David is wrong, um, which I definitely am wrong. No, I'm not. Uh, No, I definitely am. I don't know. I haven't decided what I am right now. A little bit of both. Each week. We'll tell you the story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. It could be about a game, console, technology, person, just some topic uh, that I find some cockamamie excuse to make relevant to this week. <laughs> Today, I used the video game Battle vs. Chess, which came out 12 years ago this week, to talk about chess. History of chess and chess champions and chess history and computerized chess and chess engine and chess video games not a whole lot of chess video games but that's okay we still talked about it i don't feel bad a lot of great information this week 
That it was, Dave. Part of the fun about getting to do this is that we learn things. I couldn't tell you a thing about the history of chess before we sat down to do research for this episode. I couldn't tell you anything about chess engines. Only thing I could have told you was that I used to play chess master. Uh, I couldn't even, maybe 2000, 3000. That's the last one I remember in the series. Maybe 4000. I don't know. I might be confusing it with SimCity 3000. Who knows? But uh, yeah, so we learned a lot about chess you know, that's the best part about getting to do this is as we teach you guys, we learn things. So as part of our commitment to you to teach you new things every week and our acknowledgement of the learning teaching cycle, we like to go around and talk about our big takeaways for the week. So Rob, what did you learn today? Well, Dave, I think that my biggest takeaway of this week is that there is an entire championship for chess computers. Yeah. Isn't that cool? That like, like, it's kind of like battle bots, but for chess, like yeah. I, I've never heard of that. Like and now that I'm, I'm reading up on Stockfish a little bit more, I'm seeing that it's won the chess.com computer championship and some other champ computer champ, microcomputer championship many times, but yep. it just never occurred to me that there was a championship for freaking computers. Like, was, was I right that that was one of the neuro learning? Um, I haven't quite found that information yet. I was looking and I couldn't find anything about that. I know when I started to delve into the history of chess engines and I was learning about the modern ones, that was the, that was like the difference. Like when things changed is when they started doing neuropath AI, uh, machine, like algorithm learning. So, yep. Fun stuff. I, what about you, Dave? What, what was your takeaway for the week? I am really fascinated by the fact I mean, I learned everything today, but I also really fascinated by the fact that that there was someone that was able to create an autonomous chess computer. It may have only done the end game, but we're talking 1912 before there really was anything. Technically, yeah, no, that that's definitely uh, an amazing feat. And you can go online and look at it. I mean, it's not exactly they. they it, it's still operational and it's still in a museum in Spain. Um, there are more than one version of it, uh, but the original is still there over a hundred years later, and that's so fascinating to me that we have that little piece of history. Um, that little piece of history that the sum is technically the first computer chess game. Um, you know, because the way it's designed by some definitions, it fits by other definition and others. It's the same gay with gay, the same gay, the same <laughs> way. It's the same way with actual video game history, because there are some electromechanical video games that pre-exist, like what we define video games by nowadays, like with the screen and that, that some people consider to be the first video game and some people don't. Um, this is the same concept, which is really fascinating. So, yeah. And that's chess. That's a history of chess. That's a um, uh, that's a history of chess engines. That's everything we learned about chess today, which was kind of cool. Honestly, I I didn't know anything. Yeah, no, it was definitely an interest uh, doing some research into this and learning how much it's changed and all of that. It's it's been fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, Dave, any last minute things from you? No. As always, no. I'm kidding. What would you like to add to today's episode? Well, I will take a quick moment to say thank you for anyone who is still listening. Uh, we know that this episode may not have been the most fun for everyone. But we appreciate you sticking around. Well, Dave, we're we're a different bunch. Uh, and also, thank you to those of you who put up with Rob being the leading voice for uh, a change in an episode. Because, god damn, was I unprepared for this one. Oh, boy. Not so easy, is it? You know, I'll give you credit, Dave, that... It's uh, 90% preparation and 10% performance, and I uh, I perform better than I prepare. To be fair, I have a lot of practice. Uh, yeah, you do, with those I, 140 episodes yeah, yeah, that you've yeah, done. Yeah. yeah, I don't think, like, in hindsight, you know, the first dozen episodes or so are nearly as good for that aspect of our po podcast than nowadays. Like, it... It took time to get used to that, you know, the, the way the preparation turns into the performance and so on and so forth. But I don't know. This far in, I'm pretty comfortable with it. That you are. But anyway, thank you to all of you for sticking around. We really appreciate you taking this ride with us. Well, Rob, thank you.
it was fun getting a history lesson from you. You should do it more often. Well, we'll see, Dave. Pick more topics I like. <laughs> Ouch. That stings. So, with that being said, next week we're going to tell you the story of Dragon Quest, which was originally released for the Nintendo Entertainment System in Japan on May 27th, 1986. As part of its story, we're going to learn all about the history of its publisher, Enix, as well as take a look at what helped inspire the game itself. So stick around and join us as we fight the Dragon Lord on yet another trip down memory card lane. Do that thing. Skibby doom bop 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 and chest noobs. <laughs> <laughs>